everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and today we've got part one of our interview with Ben Moskowitz from Consumer Reports. We're going to start off talking about a really interesting study that they just did uh, this year about consumers' attitudes toward privacy, both then and now, and they found some really interesting things. And I think along the way, they debunked some misconceptions about people's views on privacy, including ones that I have held myself. But more to the point, they actually kind of focused on, they, they took the approach of trying to show how consumers' views on privacy can actually be a plus for businesses, how addressing those needs and addressing those concerns can actually you know, be beneficial to the overall business model and sell products. We talk a lot about on this show about regulations and, you know, there's the carrot and there's the stick. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about the stick, which is regulations and forcing companies to do things and having penalties if they don't. But, uh, you know, in a market-driven economy, a capitalist society, what we ideally want is for the market to kind of take care of itself. And if we can show like this study does, that consumers do in fact care about privacy, and in fact, they're willing to pay extra for that, then, you know, perhaps we can use the carrot approach here and incentivize these companies to start leading in this way and make this a market differentiator. So we'll talk about that and more today in part one of our interview, which we will get to in just a minute. I do have a few things I need to go over with you first before we get into that. Uh, first, there has been a few news items, uh, but there's one in particular I want to call your attention to. And it's this new feature called Amazon Sidewalk. If you have an Echo-based device in your home, uh, or a Ring product, or really any IoT device that is made by Amazon, then you need to listen up. Amazon just rolled out this feature, and they've they said this was coming. This was not a surprise, but it's called Amazon Sidewalk, and it's technically interesting. But from a privacy standpoint, and even a security standpoint, it's just nightmarish or at least certainly has the potential to be so. So let me just kind of go over the basics here real quick instead of reading an article. Um, but basically what they're, what this is, is is all of Amazon's IoT products, and that would include their Echo devices, their Ring doorbells, uh, and potentially third-party devices as well that might want to get in on this. And what they're doing, I believe using Bluetooth, is creating what's called a mesh network. And basically what that means is all these related devices, all these Amazon controlled or affiliated devices can talk to each other and share information, including sharing your information. But here's the super creepy part. It's not just for you. It's for you and your neighbors or anybody who's near your products. Now, mesh networks are often used for reliability and robustness. Uh, in fact, there's even some really cool kind of family radio walkie-talkie kind of things and even some phone apps that work this way where if it can't get to the cellular network or can't get to Wi-Fi network, it will try to talk to a nearby device and send a message through other devices, through this mesh network. And what that means is as long as it can eventually hop to a device that does have cellular access or Wi-Fi access, then it will eventually get out to the internet. Or incoming messages will eventually get to you, even if your device doesn't have that connectivity right now, but at least can talk to a nearby device. And sometimes it's store and forward. So, you know, maybe walking through the forest uh, and you can't get any signal, but you come near somebody else's device who does, and then messages come through or go out. Okay, so that's really cool, right? Well, Amazon is turning on this feature for all of its devices by default. That's right. It's, it's an opt-out thing by default. And most people will probably never know this is happening. And so all your devices, including those devices, again, it could be your neighbor, anything that's within range of, of another Amazon Sidewalk-enabled device can share data between each other. Now, of course, Amazon says that privacy is 
key and everything is super encrypted and lo things like location data uh, is not shared with your neighbors or people nearby, but that's counting on all the security being done 100% correct all of the time. Now, you might also be thinking, and correctly so, that, hey, if, you know, if my neighbor's Echo devices or ring doorbells are trying to send data through my ring doorbell or my Echo devices, what if they're doing something nefarious or what if they're somehow accessing my home network? And those are valid concerns. And of course, Amazon said they've thought of all that and they've, it's all, again, super encrypted and, and security is taken into account and none of that will happen. And it's actually limiting the bandwidth. This is all very low data bandwidth stuff. So they're not going to be, you know, using up all your um, download or upload internet bandwidth while they do this. I mean, so the reason, the reason they're doing this is you know, ostensibly is they want to add this robustness layer. So if for some reason you want to get notified when somebody comes up to your doorbell, uh, whether they ring it or not, maybe there's facial recognition or things that you've set up on your ring doorbell, which is fine. It's your house. It's, you know, you're looking at things coming up to your front door, but if for some reason your Wi-Fi is down, uh, but that same device is close enough to your neighbor's ring doorbell or some other Amazon sidewalk enabled device, it can still send you a notification through the internet by talking to its peer first. But in reality, it's, this is, in my view, a huge data grab and a privacy hellscape. And it's on by default, which is the real, truly egregious thing going on here. So how do you disable it? Uh, if you have any of these devices, you should have on your smartphone, and I don't even want to say the word, A-L-E-X-A app. It's actually called Amazon A-L-E-X-A. That's the name of the app. It's a blue app with a little white circle on it. Uh, and if you open that up and then go into settings and then go to account settings, you will see Amazon Sidewalk. Now, mine, when I went in there, strangely enough, was already disabled. And I don't think I'd done this already. Maybe I did. But I know that they're saying that the, by default, it's going to be on. So anyway, if you go in there and find that it's enabled, I would absolutely disable it. And you might want to tell your friends about that one, too. That's, I think Amazon's going to get a lot of blowback about this, but we shall see. All right, moving on. A couple of new things coming your way. Uh, I have not gone to the dark side, but uh, I have decided that in order to reach all the people that I need to reach to maximize the number of people I can get to, I'm going to have to suck it up and create a Facebook page and a YouTube channel. So, you know, basically evangelists need to go where they're most needed. Missionaries don't get a lot accomplished when they're staying home and preaching to the choir. So I plan to create pages out there to, to so that people can actually interact with, with me and uh, the book and the podcast and everything uh, via places where they're already at. And that that's going to include Facebook and YouTube. So the Facebook page is not set up yet. I tried to create it and they shut down the account because they said there was some sort of a problem with it. And I'm waiting to hear back from somebody not sure what that's about, but that should be coming up soon. I will be telling you about that as soon as I know. You can also just go to Facebook and search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. If you go to my website, firewallsdontstopdragons.com, and go to the right-hand side and scroll down maybe a little bit, you'll see some social media links. And they've just got little buttons there for Twitter and GitHub and that sort of thing. Uh, look for the Facebook button to appear, and then you'll know that it's ready to go. And of course, I'll announce it here when I can. Facebook's probably going to be, um, uh, one of the things I'm going to be doing is there's a, there's a service that takes podcasts, audio podcasts, and turns them into videos. And it just takes a, you know, a, a stock background image and then places a little waveform on top and you can put a title on it. 
Um, and so I'm going to be using that service soon, and I'll be posting those to both YouTube and probably Facebook as well. So that other people can, you know, maybe that don't watch podcasts normally or are really into YouTube can find my material that way as well. Uh, Facebook, I'm probably going to post shorter versions of the tips that are in my book, maybe little pithy sayings from famous people about privacy and security, that sort of thing. And of course, anything that there's a contest going on, which there will be one soon, and I'll talk about that in a minute, things like that will all be posted on Facebook for sure. The YouTube channel for now will probably be mostly just the podcast videos that I've been talking about, uh, but I'm considering generating a little short how-to videos and putting those on there as well. So uh, that channel is actually exists now. It's just com- <laughs> it's just completely empty. I was trying to set up some of these videos, and I've had technical issues with them too. So it's not been a good weekend, but that will all happen sooner or later. So uh, you can find the link in the show notes. And that is a button that is uh, available on my website. If you go to those social media links on the right-hand side, there's a little YouTube button there. If you jump there, you will find the channel, and you can subscribe, even though there's nothing there yet. So please, when you get a chance, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel or the Facebook page as soon as it becomes available. Okay, so uh, last week, I asked people to please, please, please go to Amazon.com or the iTunes page for my podcast and to leave a review. I desperately need more reviews. And more modern reviews for both of them. And what I had said was I wanted to try to get 20 each reviews on both of those by Christmas. And I'm seeing now that that is probably not going to happen. But what I had promised was if I could get 20 each, then I would hold an AMA or an Ask Me Anything session, which is a live Q&A session with me for anybody who posted a review. And that is still going. Uh, I may have to lower lower the limit there a little bit to, for, to make that happen because I want to do it. But uh, I really need to get the reviews. So let's say 10. Let's say 10 reviews each on Amazon and iTunes. And when you post a review, just send me a uh, send me an email. And you can send it to feedback at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. And just send a little screenshot or something of the review you posted. Or maybe just copy, the, copy and paste the text. And if I get enough people, if I get ten, at least 10 reviews each on those, I will create at some point, probably in January, a private Ask Me Anything session for the people that posted reviews. And speaking of reviews, I'm actually looking for some formal professional reviews of the book as well. And I've created an actually an official form to fill out if you'd like to apply for that. And uh, if you're accepted, I will send you a free copy of the book to review. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. But if you go to my website, firewallsdontstopdragons.com and go to the book tab, on the right-hand side there, you will see a link to the form to fill out. So if you or someone you know who has some sort of an audience that might be interested in the book would like to do a review, and that could be somebody with a social media following or publishes a newsletter, whatever. Uh, But if you've got an audience that might be interested in this book and you would like to do a formal review, please go to that website, find the form submission link and uh, send me your application. All right. So we'll stop there for now. We'll get to our interview. Uh, Stay tuned at the end of the show. However, I've got some more updates on the big major milestone 200th podcast episode coming up very, very soon. I've got more details on the cool stuff to expect on that episode, including some updates on big prize giveaways. So anyway, stay tuned to the end of the show for those details. But for now, let's go to part one of my interview with Ben Moskowitz from Consumer Reports. Ben Moskowitz is a public interest technologist, and he currently heads up the digital lab at Consumer Reports. Prior to this, among other things, Ben was the director of R&D for the International Rescue Committee. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I ran across uh, a study you guys did recently at Consumer Reports about privacy and, you know, knowing also that Consumer Reports has been making a point 
recently to highlight the security and privacy aspects of the products it reviews. Uh, and with the gift-giving season fast approaching, I thought now would be a perfect time to discuss this topic on the show. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad that worked out. Uh, but you know, before we start, why don't we why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and you know maybe you, what you're doing at Consumer Reports? Sure. Um, so I look at technology. I've been involved in um, open source, public interest tech, civic tech uh, for a very long time. Uh, I used to work at Mozilla mm-hmm. on open source, not open standards, uh, and recently I've been more involved in helping organizations think about how to bring in open source thinking and and be effective in serving the public interest through technology. So that led me ultimately to where I am right now at Consumer Reports. Last year, we launched a new initiative called the Digital Lab, uh, and it's an initiative supported by Craig Newmark and some others. And the idea is to help Consumer Reports look at things like privacy, security, ownership in the digital world, the same way that we've looked at price, safety, value, you know, for 80 years now. Well, that's great. And so we're going to talk about some of that today. And I know, you know, Consumer Reports has been the forefront of conducting independent product reviews and consumer education for decades. I mean, I've been a subscriber off and on either through the old paper magazine or uh, now digitally for quite a long time. It's a great resource. Um, now, traditionally, of course, like you kind of mentioned, you guys are focused on, you know, purchase price, cost of ownership, quality and usability features. So, you know, when and why did you guys, you know, start to factor in the much less conspicuous security and privacy aspects of products in your ratings? So everything has an interconnection now, it feels mm-hmm. like. Uh, and so a couple of years ago, it became hard to ignore for Consumer Reports. And as a nonprofit organization that's ultimately around to help consumers make good choices and help shape the marketplace, you know, on behalf of consumers, it's really hard to ignore you know, some of the things that digital rights groups have been talking yeah. about and focused on for years. So uh, in 2017, we launched the Digital Standard, and that was an effort to say, well, here's what we think is good. Here's what good looks like when it comes to privacy, security, ownership. And since then, we've been incorporating these kinds of evaluations into our regular product testing. So as I said before, you know, we'll look at the price, the performance, uh, the safety of any given product or service. And increasingly now, we want to layer in some of these uh, you know, new and, and sort of digital measures. That's fantastic. You recently conducted a study. It was to, quote unquote, examine evolving consumer attitudes toward privacy and quantify privacy's market impact. Uh, so what sorts of specific questions were you seeking to answer with this study? And uh, how did you go about attempting to answer them? So we work a lot with companies and we share our test results with them. So if you make a smart toaster or a smart TV and it's got some privacy or security issues, we care as much about making that information available to the manufacturers as we do mm-hmm. to consumers because we want to help them you know, do better. And we found that a lot of times, you know, interacting with companies, there'd be a feeling of, oh, well, we need to address this because that's table stakes. Or if we don't, you know, Consumer Reports will put out a bad article about mm-hmm. us. Yeah. But what we wanted companies to see is the upside of competing on privacy and security. And, you know, we and others in the consumers movement, we were involved in past decades in making like safety uh, Mm. an area of competition. So let's compete to make the safest car or even sustainability. Let's compete to have the most energy efficient appliance. So this report was really our effort at, you know, taking stock of all the data we've got about consumers' preferences, about the performance of different companies in the marketplace, and just try to isolate, you know, how much does privacy really matter you know, to a buyer, can we quantify that in such a way that we can make a case that companies should really focus on this, not just because it's the right thing to do, which of course it is, uh, but also because it's going to give them a competitive edge in the market. 
Yeah, so this study was really neat. I mean, I read through your at least the summary of the study, the, the PDF, and there's some really interesting stuff in there, which I hope to go through here. So uh, the, the first part of your study investigates the evolution of privacy attitudes, you know, like over the past few decades. And you kind of broke it out into four separate eras, maybe call them that, uh, maybe back to 1995. So talk about that. Like what differentiates these periods? And, and were there any like specific events that drove the transitions between these eras of privacy attitudes? Yeah, so this this piece of research that we did is actually a meta-analysis of public opinion studies going back 25 years, including ones that we've done in the last 25 years. Um, so you know, we, we looked at um, you know, studies by Pew, uh, Harris, and others, and we tried to track things like consumers' attitudes towards privacy or, or consumers' awareness of certain privacy issues you know, to see if they've evolved over time, and if so, how they've evolved. And, you know, the, the story that we found is, you know, going back to kind of the beginning of Web 1.0, uh, at first you have cautious users. And, you know, the cautious users are maybe getting online for the first time uh, with a local ISP or maybe AOL or Prodigy mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, and they're generally aware of the risks that exist out there on the Internet, the security risks, you know, but they're cautiously optimistic. And, uh, you know, they, they hear things like, watch out for phishing, don't mm-hmm. share your personal information online. Moving into Web 2.0, what we see are more confident users, maybe almost overconfident right. users, uh, you know, who think they understand, you know, how the Internet's business model works, or maybe think that a privacy policy means something that it doesn't, <laughs> and often assume that they have protections and sort of guardrails that aren't there. So, uh, you know, this kind of confident user period, you, you see people answering questions the wrong way. Uh, you know, a privacy policy means that no one will share my data. No, it's not what a privacy policy means. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, so starting around 2011, and, you know, there's a lot of drivers for this, uh, including great journalism, including some very high-profile data breaches. You start to see concerned users, uh, you know, where the tide starts turning from, you know, this cautious optimism, maybe overconfidence. Now people are starting to see that, We've got a new business model for a lot of online commerce. And so, you know, Julia Angwin's work, fantastic watershed moment in sort of public understanding of some of this stuff. Uh, a lot of early Facebook privacy scandals, of course, mm-hmm. Snowden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we sort of track this, uh, this changing sentiment where suddenly people are not so stoked about the Internet, maybe <laughs> a bit worried. Uh, yeah. and, and really interestingly, you know, for a number of reasons, Cambridge Analytica, some other drivers, um, Today, you've got critical users. So a lot of critical thinking, a lot of, you know, maybe overthinking about, you know, the way that online privacy and security play out. And, and that's good. That can be a good thing because mm. that can be a force for, you know, public policy change. But what doesn't change, you know, through this 25-year saga, and this is one of the things we really wanted to understand, it's never been the case that people don't care about privacy. Mm. I mean, you often hear from people, well... People don't care about their privacy because look at these privacy invasive behaviors. Look at these counterproductive behaviors people have. But there's lots of ways that you can explain that. And one way is to say that the market's not actually serving consumers' expectations. So there are neither rules against the kind of data sharing uh, without explicit consent that people find so onerous, you know, nor are there really alternatives in the marketplace, right? Like, what are you going to, are you going to not use Google? Are you going to not use Facebook? Uh, so there's lots of reasons why we think the structure of the marketplace kind of leads people into things that are not not only in their best interest, but also not their stated preference. And we want to help tell the story so that you know companies don't feel like we have to have a race to the bottom, right, where every product or service needs to collect data and be part of this. 
but that actually uh, there are quantifiable benefits to companies who compete and who differentiate on privacy and security. As you're kind of going through that in my mind, I was almost picturing like a almost like a, a human maturity thing because the internet. I mean, we all we kind of grew with the internet because the internet wasn't always a bad place either. I mean, and some of the business models we have today developed over time, kind of probably not not coincidentally with some of these attitude changes we've had. And you know, we kind of then you get to some place in your adult life where your innocence lost, and you realize that you know there are bad people out there and. But you know, but knowing that, then you just become cautious. It doesn't mean you become a shut-in either. So it's yeah. So that's fascinating. Well, and you know, like we, we're tracking the evolution of you know what's basically happening online, our computers, and later on our mobile phones. Uh, but one reason that Consumer Reports is really active in this is like now with IoT, you know, it's kind of this slow motion phenomena where a lot of the appliances you buy have internet connections, right? Yeah. And so you know, privacy and security become much more important. And we, we ask people, you know, we do nationally representative, very rigorous surveys. When you buy a smart product, are you worried about loss of privacy? And, you know, upwards of 60% of people always say yes. We are, you know, looking into, well, how often does that depress people's purchasing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if people have a choice between a smart product and a non-smart product, I don't think we can say for certain that they always want the smart product, right? The smart product might be, you know, uh, a net adjusted worse product, you know, because of the privacy and security issues because of, you know, maybe the future obsolescence. We know that's going to be a big issue too, right? I mean, these smart yeah. products are not going to have a huge shelf life. You know, so we're really trying to be involved in helping manufacturers understand, you know, at a very practical level, here's how you'll rank highly with consumer reports. You know, and to the extent that that translates to some market share, great. But really in a bigger sense, you know, in a macro sense, uh, let's, let's develop the marketplace in a direction that's going to benefit consumers and benefit companies. Let's make sure we're competing, you know, on the right dimensions there. Yeah, for sure. One of the other things that was called out about this point in the study is you, uh, there's a couple of key misconceptions that uh, we have about privacy. And I, I admit, I've, as anybody who listens to this show knows, I've wrestled with these myself. And, you know, that is whether, you know, is it the consumers either don't care about privacy or that they simply are unwilling to spend the time or the money to protect it. So what did your, your study reveal about those uh, misconceptions? Well, I think going back to the kind of, you know, cautious users period, people probably felt that they had more protection than they actually did, mm. right? So people were trained to think about things like HIPAA, you know, the medical yeah. privacy. And, and to just imagine, well, the consequences of sharing information uh, or the possibility of a first party sharing my information with a third party without my consent, it just seems like a remote, distant possibility, even though, you know, that's fully within the framework, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, the fatigue that sets in, you know, over basically, you know, two, almost three decades of that being the framework, the fatigue now is, well, I don't like it, uh, there's, but there's nothing I can do about it. Mm. And the cat's already out of the bag. So mm -hmm. the, the asymmetry here between, you know, the poor individual consumer who has to think about all these commercial interactions they have every day, right. hundreds of companies, you know, there's not a whole lot they can do, honestly. Uh, and, and that's part of what we're trying to interrupt. So this study that we're talking about, you know, is one piece. It's really a manufacturer. It's really an industry-focused piece. We're trying to change the discussion by bringing in great hard data. Uh, and we can talk a bit more about that data. But we also have to look at, you know, what can the law do? And things like the California Consumer Privacy Act are really good because they give companies affirmative obligations. Mm -hmm. And they give consumers affirmative rights, I mean, absolute rights that they can exercise about who can do what with their data. Um, you know, so that needs to be part of the discussion as well. 
So let's talk about a few of those interesting stats, and I've got a few of them here, but they, the study, you know, after, of course, going through the history, obviously looks at the current views of consumer uh, attitude regarding privacy. So there are a lot of really interesting stats there, but to you, which one of those uh, findings were you most surprised about or were you found the most consequential? You know, the most interesting, surprising, consequential ones are the ones from the survey that we did this year, right? So we had a lot of retrospective data, but, you know, we also wanted to say, where are we today? Uh, and so, you know, just here's some of the pluralities that we hear, right? 68% of Americans say companies should be required to delete the data they have about you upon your request, mm-hmm. right? So the right to delete, yeah. you know, has, has almost three quarters of people feeling like that's an important right. Californians have that right. We're going to be going to state houses all over the country and saying, you know, shouldn't just be Californians that have this right. Mm-hmm. It's very popular. 67% of Americans say there should be tougher penalties, uh, such as high fines for companies that don't protect your privacy. You know, and we can get into, you know, the psychology of all this. But, um, you know, I think uh, I don't have the stat readily available, but a huge plurality of people have experienced a data breach mm-hmm. and don't know it. But a surprising number of people have experienced a data breach and, you know, it's affected them in their life, right? Like it's affected their credit score. Yeah. They've had to get new credit cards. You know, 64% of Americans say companies should be prohibited from sharing data with third parties. Yeah, uh, that surprises that know. low, actually. Yeah. But yeah. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this, this, this goes on, right? So I think one thing that's clear is that this is a really popular set of ideas. You know, and we just had the California Consumer Privacy Act amended and made stronger, you know, in the November ballot initiative. And I think it shows that these are broadly popular concepts and, and they're common sense, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, another thing you asked, what are the sort of interesting or surprising? We asked people who should be most responsible hmm. for protecting consumers' privacy. So think of all the stakeholders in, you know, guaranteeing consumer privacy. Who should be most responsible? So a plurality, 42% of people said that it's the companies that should be responsible. Mm. You know, so that that's something that we want companies to, to think about and be aware of, right? Companies yeah. that are, are really responsive, companies that go above and beyond, I think are going to be rewarded in the long term. You look at a company like Microsoft, which I think took a great step and said, those CCPA rights, we're going to offer those same rights to everyone in the U.S., Right. Because why not? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> right. If yeah. we have to offer them to Californians, why not? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of those cases, it's, it, we're benefiting, just like the GDPR, which I'll ask about in a second. But I mean, these things are not directly affecting all of us, but because these are global companies or at least national companies, if they've got to do it one place, they may as well do it all places because doing it differently in both is actually difficult. So yeah, it's even if you don't live in California, where a lot of us are going to, which I don't, a lot of us are going to benefit from some of those same laws, which is, which is wonderful. Um, I actually printed that uh, the results of that question you had because I thought that was fascinating as well. And I've got to remember my notes. And you, forty, yeah, forty-two percent said the companies are most responsible. Thirty-two percent said it was the federal government, and then only seventeen percent said individuals. And then I also thought interesting enough, three percent said the state. Which right now that's that's where we're at in the U.S. So that leads me to my next question, and that is. You know, there's an undeniable lack of comprehensive consumer privacy law in the U.S. We're obviously making progress, but it's nothing like what we've got in Europe. So uh, why, do you, why do you think, if you have an opinion, why do you think the U.S. has failed here while the, the EU has at least tried? I mean, they've, they've gone a lot further we have in their way ahead of us. Why do you, why do you think that is? Is it a cultural thing or, or what? Culture is definitely part of it. I mean, Europeans uh, are way more comfortable with regulation and Americans mm-hmm. are 
way more comfortable with the market, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that, um, you know, it's not an either or. I mean, we can have uh, an environment that's really good and enables great innovation and allows companies to prosper and not get crushed under the burden of compliance and also have really affirmative, strong obligations, penalties, you know, if companies mess up and, and rights for consumers. I mean, going back to what you're saying, right, who should be most responsible? Only 17% of people think that individuals should be responsible. I want to right. know who those who those 17% <laughs> are because, you know, what you're asking is, you know, every consumer to really think and, you know, expend precious cognitive bandwidth, you know, in every transaction they have right. with every, you know, entity and it just doesn't work. I mean, the, the, the burden that is put on a consumer to, to do that is unreasonable. Right. right? So. It's good to see that we're making progress in California. There's lots of states that um, are very close to considering CCPA-like laws. And the end game is, you know, no one wants a patchwork of state privacy laws. It is the case that at the state level is where you can actually make progress right now because the federal right. government is pretty gridlocked. But at some point, you know, there'll be a critical mass and then hopefully we'll get a good pro-consumer federal, you know, privacy framework um uh, that makes life easier on everybody, right? And and creates the right, you know, dynamics for companies to compete. Right. Yeah. It, the whole notion of opt out is just is just a myth. I mean, it's just it's not logistically possible. I mean, even if you could read all the privacy policies, read all the terms of service every time you clicked accept, if you if you were even aware of all the different settings and configuration things that you could do to con, it's just not. It's just not possible. I mean, there's just there are thousands of them. There's just no way for any individual to, to hope to to opt out of anything. I mean, it just it's just not possible. Right. Well, and that is kind of the, the, the one crappy thing. And it's a pretty crappy thing about CCPA, which is, you know, for all the positive of CP, CCPA, it's still kind of digging us deeper in what's essentially an opt out mm. framework. Right. And so Consumer Reports model privacy bill which we've been working on and which we're going to share later this year, you know, for state houses to consider. Uh, that one is a bit stronger than CCPA because it says by default, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you need to opt in. So much closer to, to GDPR and spirit. In the meantime, there's lots of really creative hacks that we're part of and that others are kind of driving forward just using the existing CCPA. Uh, so one of them is the global privacy control. Yes. And what's interesting about that is it's basically taking the old do not track idea, mm -hmm. which is let's just signal the companies, you know, in the web browser when people are surfing, I don't want to be tracked. And then it's on them to kind of honor your preference. Right. So a bunch of smart technologists, including Ashkan Sultani, you know, came together, created a coalition and we're part of it. Uh, and the idea is let's have a do not track style uh, solution where a consumer can go and then set a global privacy preference, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want my information to be sold. The difference this time is that it's legally binding. Right. right? And so we've heard from the attorney general that um, you know, that's how that will be interpreted. That will be a consumer's preference. So that it's a nice hack because for people that turn it on, you know, you're not in an opt-out world, right? You're kind of stopping it at the head. Right. You know, some other hacks, just as long as we're on this, CCPA has this idea of an authorized agent. Mm -hmm. And the basic idea is, well, great, as a consumer, I now have all these great new rights, the right to delete my data, the right to get a copy of my data, the right that it's not sold. And as you were saying, it's really hard for any one person to say, great, I'm going to go exercise that mm -hmm. right with a thousand companies. Right. I'm going to go to each company. I'm going to go to the footer. I'm going to fill out their form. No one's going to do that. Right. Right. If you can't exercise the rights, then you might as well not have the rights. <sighs> right. So the, the cool thing here is the authorized agent. It says... 
I can delegate a third party. I, as a consumer, can say, I want Consumer Reports or Mozilla or EFF to be my authorized agent. Mm. And so we are doing some experiments, which you can read about. Uh, you can Google just CR authorized agent. Really, really early stage stuff. But we think it'd be really cool if a consumer could sign up and you know give permission. And then we could keep an eye on all the really unscrupulous data brokers, you know, mm-hmm. people search sites, the stuff that you get no value out of as a consumer. Yes. But you don't have to think about it, right? You're going to delegate to us, and we're going to take care of that for you. Well, that oh god, that would be wonderful. And I've gotten on some of those people search sites, and it's really, really hard as an individual to get them to pull you out of that. I had to go through months and months of back and forth with them, you know, asking them to remove my data. They said they would, and then it showed back up, and. I ran across the other day some sort of a privacy service, and this must be following along the same lines, is you set them up as your legal agent, and they, on your behalf for a subscription fee, will will go and file cease and desist or, I mean, all these actual legal, take legal actions to file with these companies on your behalf to just, over time, because you're going to keep getting adding to more lists, is just go through and do that for you. So, yeah, that, that is an interesting way. It, you know, if you can designate someone to do it for you, that has a chance. Yeah. It's this is a really early stage kind of idea. So it's the kind of thing that probably wouldn't be practical unless something in the law says yes, this is the law. So right. you know, thanks to CCPA, there's a little foothold there, right? The right. door's a little bit open, and you know, for this to really work at scale, it, the ecosystem has to advance a whole lot. You know, companies need to honor the requests. Um, there need to be you know semi-automated workflows for this, or it won't scale. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're really excited and you're, you're citing some of like the early stage companies just to see where this goes yeah. uh, and to do some experiments. And, you know, for anyone listening uh, who thinks that sounds cool, we, we're really trying to take an open source approach to this and would love to partner up and, you know, see what, what might be possible. Wonderful. Yes, I yeah, I hope this does take off. And, I, and you're right, it does feel like there's critical mass growing here. And I think that's a good thing. So. In your studies, one of the one of the aspects you looked at was, you know, are at the end of the day, are consumers actually willing to pay more for products and services that don't collect their personal data? Like, you know, we think of Google and and Yahoo and and all these things as quote unquote free, and of course they're not. We're we're paying with our data in ways that we probably don't even understand. But given that 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 was an option, if the manufacturers and service providers do end up offering these kind of two models, you know, the quote unquote free or the one where you can pay and supposedly they have them not share your data. Is the natural outcome of that though, that then privacy becomes a luxury good? No one wants that. Right. Uh, That's a dystopian scenario. Mm. Uh, But I think if you look at the history of, you know, kind of pro-consumer evolution in the marketplace, you often have the case where you have like a, a leading edge or leading indicator where maybe the higher end products are safer or more energy efficient or whatever. And over time, uh, you know, that becomes table stakes. And then you have a new standard that you mm. need to set. Um, so, you know, we're certainly not advocating for like a pay for privacy world or like, you know, hellscape where if you can't <sighs> afford an Apple device, you know, tough, tough luck. To your question, though, I mean, do, would people pay? You can get a lot of academics in a room and you can get a lot of marketers in a room and they could violently disagree. <laughs> uh, and, you know... Some of the the question has to do with, well, are people paying to preserve privacy they've got? Mm. Uh, Are they they paying to um, gain privacy that they don't have? And so there have been kind of behavioral economics experiments where people 
were offered five dollars, you know, for their um, browsing history to not be shared. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't want I don't want that shared. I'm more likely to pay that five to prevent a loss of privacy, right? Than if it's already been made public. Hmm. Uh, so there's lots of kind of very interesting psychological you know, pivot points. But I can tell you that the study that we did, it was pretty unequivocal, right? The study that we did said, yes, people will pay for privacy and security. Uh, so I can talk through a bit about the methodology we use, you know, and, the, and also the shortcomings of it. Uh, but th- without a doubt, I mean, we looked at VPNs, um, health apps, security cameras, cars, and across the board, pretty much, privacy and security ranked really highly in impacting whether someone would buy a product and also correlated with the willingness to pay for that product. Yeah, cars is a really interesting one. And we could talk a long time about that. But I think a lot of people are, it, it, a lot of our cars are now connected. A lot of them come with cellular service built in. You know, it used to be OnStar and things like that that were for your benefit for in case you got in a crash. But of course, now it's telematics and it's data. Um, yeah. you know, and, and whether, and then there's the little dongles that you put in from your car insurance company that track, you know, that basically monitor, surveil you to see how your driving habits are. And there's a lot more privacy issues coming up with cars than I think people realize too. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's very sure. interesting. Yeah. Well, cars is a tricky one, but you know, if just to kind of talk about the study for a second, like yeah. the, the method is, uh, it's content analysis. So it's like a classic business school approach to figuring out, you know, product market fit and demand and things like that. So what we did is we had a panel of people, some some thousands number of people. I can't remember the size of the panel, but it was significant, right? Similar to a nationally representative survey. And we had a randomized slate of products. So, you know, here's a hypothetical VPN. Here's a hypothetical smart speaker and so on. And what we would do is head-to-head matchups. So, you know, VPN A, it's the market leader in security. It doesn't log your your browsing and so on. B, it's a little bit cheaper, it's a little bit faster. So we, we did those head-to-head matchups with randomized product attributes tens of thousands of times, right? Mm. So that we have a, st- a statistical valid way of isolating the weight mm. of something like privacy or security. And, you know, as you'd expect, price is always the most impactful attribute, mm. right? Yeah. Price really affects people's purchasing behavior more than anything else. That's obvious. Uh, but for most of these categories that we looked at, we looked at six categories, privacy and security actually were right behind that. Uh, you know, and sometimes ahead of things like um, ease of use, you know, or personalization. Mm. Um, so we thought that was quite significant. And for any given, you know, manufacturer or company, you, you can't take that to the bank. Uh, but we think it's the beginning of a discussion, you know, and you, you would want to look into each category and say, what do we need to do to create the information? Uh, you know, to kind of create the dynamics where the companies doing the best job are actually getting rewarded in the marketplace, right? Um, yeah. And that's part of what CR sees its function as, right? Through ratings, reviews, evaluations. And so this is a really important, you know, piece of work, we hope, that starts a lot of discussions and helps us focus on how can we raise the standard in these various categories in a way that's not an imposition or like, you know, uh, a net negative for these companies. It's not more work to do. It's actually a source of competitive advantage for them, hopefully. Yeah, that'd be very interesting to see over time as well. Like, for instance, the whole smart speaker thing, that really blew up, what, last year or whatever, when, you know, some of the studies started coming around that real humans were listening to some of your sound snippets, and that that was a real hullabaloo. So it'd be really you know, interesting to see the results of that same study before and after that, those news, that news cycle. Yeah, no doubt. 
All right, one more thing, and, and we'll talk about then we'll get into this digital standard. But at a philosophical level, you know, it's, it's a cliche. You know, we have both carrot and stick approaches to privacy, right? There's you either convince these makers to embrace privacy as a profitable market differentiator, which is one of the things you've been talking about and hoping for. But then, you know, there's also implementing regulations, which we've also talked about with fines, you know, to compel this behavior. Do we need both? And if so, how do we balance those two approaches? And on that little teaser, we will end part one of our interview with Ed Moskowitz. So be sure to subscribe uh, so you don't miss the big conclusion, part two of the interview, which will come out, of course, next week. And next week, we're going to talk about uh, some really cool tools that Consumer Reports has set up to help increase your security and privacy. They've got this really neat new uh, standard that they're proposing for evaluating products and services based on security and privacy. And they have a tool that they wrote that allows you to answer a few simple questions about what your concerns are and what kind of devices you have, and then gives you a custom checklist of things that you could do to increase your security and privacy. Really cool. So definitely don't want to miss that next week. I did want to mention really quick, he talked about uh, Julia Angwin. Uh, she wrote a book called Dragnet Nation. She's been a reporter at ProPublica and some other great journalistic sites. And I'm actually reading that book right now myself. It's a good book. So that's what he was referring to. And also I want to call out something he's going to talk about actually in the next part of this thing, but it's a limited time thing, so I don't want you to miss it. Uh, he's going to mention a free screening of a movie called Coded Bias. And that will end on December 14th, so I wanted to tell you about it now. If you go to action.consumerreports.org slash coded bias, C-O-D-E-D underscore B-I-A-S, you can just give them your name and email and they will give you a link to check out this movie. I'm, I've done it myself. I haven't watched it yet, but I, I've signed up. I've registered uh, and I will plan to watch that sometime in the next couple of weeks. Also, I referred to a legal representative company as we were talking about that and I looked it up so I could tell you about it. It's called Privacy B, Privacy B-E-E. Now, I'm not necessarily endorsing these guys. I have not used them, uh, but that is the company I was referring to. So if that interests you at all, you might want to go to their website and check that out. All right, real quick, before we go, I wanted to catch you up on the plans for the 200th episode. That's going to be on December 28th. That's the Monday right before New Year's. And because of that, due to the timing, we're going to be doing a New Year's resolution show. I will be giving you some suggestions for things that you might want to do in 2021, some top tip items that you definitely want to be considering if you have not done so already to increase your security and privacy. And I have reached out to several of uh, my past guests, some of my favorite guests on the show, and I've asked them to provide some of their big tips as well. So you're going to get little snippets from other people we've heard of before, including Corey Doctorow, with their take on some great 2021 New Year's resolutions for security and privacy. And in addition to all that, if that weren't enough, we've got Bruce Schneier, world-renowned crypto guru and really cool guy. Uh, he was there for my 100th episode, and he's back for the 200th. Hopefully we have now established a precedent, and he will keep coming back. He's a great guy to talk to. I, I love Bruce's stuff. He literally wrote the book on cryptography back in the day. Uh, and he has published many books since that are very, very accessible and very, actually, very important reads. Data and Goliath is one of my favorites. He's got a newer one called Click Here to Kill Everybody. That's, that's a really interesting read as well. But he's got some really, really sharp insights on privacy and data and security in the modern age. So check those out for sure. And we're going to talk to him about a new project he's got going called Interrupt with Tim Berners-Lee, who is widely considered to be the father of the Internet. And they've got a very interesting proposal for how we can protect our data going forward and a new model for how we choose to share it and retain control. So we definitely want to check that out. And so what would you pay? Don't answer. There's more. 
I'm also going to be doing a really great giveaway associated with that. And you'll have to listen to that episode to learn how to enter the contest. A lot of the companies that, are, uh, that have been represented by guests I've interviewed in the past are offering some really cool swag and some gift cards and free services and all sorts of great stuff that I'm going to package up into some really cool giveaways. So it's going to be a great, great episode. Now, between now and then, we've got two other episodes. We've got the second part of our interview with Ben Moskowitz. That will be next week. And right after that, right before Christmas, I'm going to do a best of 2020 episode where I will collect some of my favorite parts of the podcast that we've done for the last year, mostly focused on some of the top tips for the tips of the week. But we'll see what else I find and throw in there as well. I think that's going to become an annual tradition. So check that out. And then the one after that's the big one, the 200th episode. So subscribe now and you will get all of that. And hopefully these are going to start showing up on my YouTube channel as well. So if you prefer to consume things that way, check out my YouTube channel. All right, that'll do it. Take care, everybody. Please stay safe. Stay home as much as possible. It's really, really getting bad out there. We need to contain this. So if you have to go out, be sure to wear your masks. Avoid gatherings. Avoid crowds. Avoid, unfortunately, getting together with your family, especially if they're traveling here and not somebody you normally live with. It's not just for you. It's for them. We need to keep everybody safe. So please... Avoid seeing people in person this year around so that you can see them in person next year and all the years to come. Okay, everybody, that's it. Take care. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.